This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So today, I want to revisit one of my favorite panel discussions from last year. As I continue to explore the roadblocks and the challenges that growers face to transitioning to regenerative management, I've been thinking back to the insights from Ian Robertson, Ed Brown, and Ben Taylor Davies. So let's jump back this week to an absolute gem of a chat. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Now, I've touched on this topic briefly in previous interviews, but it bears repeating. Agriculture around the world is going through a crucial moment right now. The skyrocketing prices of petroleum products, meaning most agriculture chemicals and fertilizers as well as machinery fuel, is causing a tipping point for many farm businesses. Operations that have long been dependent on these synthetic inputs are facing tough decisions. Do they double down and continue to keep their land on life support, sticking with the system that they know but which is becoming more and more unsustainable? Or do they take a gamble on new management methods that prioritize soil biology and multiple ecosystem services? Now it gets trickier though because there is no easy answers, since for most growers who've relied on these inputs for years, if not decades, there will need to be a period of transition, even if they choose regenerative management, in which their yields could suffer. Luckily though, there are a few well-qualified professionals out there with a track record of guiding farmers through the challenge of transitioning their land management practices and I had the chance to speak with three of them in a special panel discussion. So in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Ian Robertson, Ben Taylor Davies, and Ed Brown. Between these three fellas, they have decades of experience at the forefront of regenerative agriculture, and they continue to push the advancement of agroecological innovation at both the individual farm scale as well as the institutional level. All three of these guys are good friends who attest to speaking to one another just about every day, and you'll hear the characteristics of their friendship come out in this insightful and also lighthearted discussion. But I'll let them give their own introductions, and so now I'll hand things over to Ben, Ian, and Ed. I'll start this off, gentlemen, uh, by going around and let's get some introductions from everyone so that we can get the right voice to the right name. Uh, Starting with Ian, would you like to go first? Oh yeah, <clears throat> I'm in in Robertson. Um, I run a business called Sustainable Soil Management, which is looking at the soils in a lot more detail. Um, I've been involved in soils since two year two thousand, um, and we've always the, the my, my background has been grew up on on, on organic farm, so we've always been focused on soils. Um, was very much involved in organic agriculture, however. Um, the development over the last number of years has been about linking the best chemistry we've got, or the best best technology, best chemistry out there with standard organic practices. Um, that all starts with the soil. So we've been spending a lot of time understanding the soil's physical and chemical attributes, which then in turn lead to biology. And we're doing more and more biological testing now because it's a lot more um, readily available at a sensible price for farmers to use, where before it was almost a kind of research tool in the biological area. Um, yes, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, 20 years. Brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Ed, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Uh, yeah, so um, I qualified as an agronomist uh, eight years ago. Um, I've spent the first two or three years learning the ropes as a, as a, traditional, um, a traditional agronomist with answers in a can and a bag. 
um, and then became interested in soil health, mainly off the back of beginning to see more and more issues on on my clients' farms around soils and how they were managed and problems that that then caused from an agronomic perspective. Uh, and from soil health, then very much fell down the rabbit hole of regenerative agriculture, which is when I started speaking a lot with, with Ben and, and Ian. Uh, and then, yeah, really have built up a, a sort of client base and a reputation based around that and, and spend my time practically implementing regenerative agriculture um, for, for farmers in the UK. And I'm now uh, head of agroecology for Hutchinson's, the company I work for. So that will basically be providing support to other agronomists, um, helping their clients navigate you know, sort of new ways of doing things uh, and also putting together a training program for agronomists so that they can deliver what I do on farm as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Ed. And Ben, for those who haven't heard you on this show before, can you give them a little of your background? Yeah, so um, I, I'm very similar intro to, uh, to Ed, actually. Um, trained as a, unfortunately, I didn't see the light quite as quick as Ed did. So I was probably about 15 years into an agronomist uh, of high input agronomy until I actually um, realized that perhaps we were shoveling water uphill with a pitchfork. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm also a farmer that tries to implement what, what I preach. So I practice what I preach and preach what I practice. Um, and um, interesting enough, that what the reason that the three of us are here is probably uh, we speak almost daily. We just happen to have this most um, wonderful rapport of bouncing ideas around. There is one thing I think in regenerative agriculture you need is a sounding board to talk to people, to bounce ideas off. And when you happen to have the right couple of people that you can bounce the ideas around, bring up and say, do you think I'm being absolutely stupid? Or do you think I'm absolutely onto something here? It's always handy to have a couple of people and, and Ian and Ed, um, uh, uh, people I speak to pretty much daily, um, to just bounce these things around. And I think you end up also egging each other on a little bit to, to push and, and, and drive and, and, and that also helps. And um, yeah, so, for, so from my point of view, Farmer regen, um, regen agronomist trading as regen Ben, as most most would know, um, and um, yeah, living living the life. <laughs> Fantastic, and it's that dynamic, it's that rapport, and that exchange that the three of you have that I'm hoping to get a window into here and share with the audience. But I want to start from the beginning with a statement that I hope will get us past some of the preliminary talks that would otherwise have us defining some basics. So let's begin with a general statement, and then we can build on this through the, throughout the discussion. And that would be that biologically dynamic, healthy soil is one of, if not the key element in a profitable and regenerative farming enterprise to understand and manage effectively. Would we all agree on that so far? Yeah, it's a good place to start. All right, well, with that said then, let's go into the first question, which is, what are the most common reasons that farmers come to each of you for help? Or perhaps what are the most common predicaments that the growers that you encounter are in? Uh, Ed, would you like to start us off? No pressure. Um, it's probably not the answer you wanted, but there are so there, there's always a different reason because farms and farmers are so specific to their, their land, their system, their rotation, their markets that usually the, road, the the reasons for them coming to you are, are quite varied. But I guess if I was to pick out a, a 
common trend. It would kind of be that that the the recognition that the way they've been they're doing things and have been doing things for for quite some time aren't delivering the results that they need anymore. And that could be simply in terms of profit. It could be how they feel the land is being managed and the soil's being looked after for future generations of the family. Um, and more just the fact that the conventional practices aren't aren't doing the job anymore. That can of X that they used to put on to control Y doesn't work anymore. Um, input prices are so volatile um, that they just feel that they're in a high risk system and they want to de-risk it. So that's, yeah, that would probably be the general general trend. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's kind of a catch-all for the reasons why growers come into a crisis mode. And it could be from any number of smaller technical problems, but that is kind of the pattern that we see in the farming industry, not only in the UK, but across Europe and a lot of other places in the world right now. Ian, would you say that that's similar to your own experiences? Yeah, I think the one thing I would add to that is just what I find a lot is that there's a, a requirement or a, a want to take ownership. Um, again, if you go back to an organic farm, you're very, you as the farm manager or the owner are the one that makes an awful lot of those decisions. You're managed, you really are managing it. A lot of the farms that I'm talking about, have sort of not, they've not abdicated. The, the decision-making has kind of left them because farming's got really complicated, whether that's chemical agronomy or fertilizers, machinery. And there's this kind of want to say, well, actually, to all Ed's points, you know, there's financial pressure, there's everything. And they're going, well, actually, why are we working so hard and actually not getting the, the rewards? So there's this kind of like kind of ability or they want to kind of stop to draw breath and say, well, what are we doing on the farm that actually we really should be doing? And what are the things we're doing that we're doing because we were just doing them? And it, it's quite, I mean, I loved having meetings with, with quite well, very big farms that have been doing this. And they kind of go, right, just sit around the table. And this thing Ben, Ben and I talked about quite a lot is, you know, ask childlike questions. And you're sitting there with these really big, quite big businesses and just asking questions. They kind of go, uh, I don't know why we do that. And then they start drilling into it and you find out they're doing it because it's a habit. And once we start talking about being a habit, you think, well, actually, well, let's unpick that. And that's when we then start focusing on all the areas about the soil and why we're doing what we're doing and, and the lack of um, lack of contribution. A lot of the farms or a lot of the soils on the farms aren't delivering. Ben, but is that similar with you as well? The, um, the yeah. inquiries that you get kind of stem from the same anxieties and lack of understanding of fundamental processes? Yeah, um, I, I, I have both all of that, but I have a couple of other things and, 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 I, and I'm sure Ian and Ed will start agreeing when I, when I point them out. There are two fundamental problems I, I come across more and more often these days. Number one is that farmers gone and um, read Gabe Brown's book, bought a direct drill and yields have gone from 10 to 9 to 8 tons to 6 tons. <laughs> and, and forgot to tell his soil that he was actually going to change the whole way he was going to farm and realises that there is a way and there could be a way, but, but unfortunately I've, I've got really, um, really um, struggling with, with, with explaining to their soil uh, that's what's going to happen. So that, that's, that's one of the things that we see an awful lot of. The other thing I see an awful lot of is people are on a journey and get stuck. So I've done, I've done this and I've done that and I, and I now want to 
go to the next stage, reduce nitrogen, um, reduce this, um, cut out that. How, how do I go? How do I push on further from where I am? So I find that it's one of those things that people can get into quite easy to start with, but then obviously get build their confidence and then wonder where how to take the next step. Um, would be would be the, the two others I would add to the to the to, to that. Hmm. And is that common with what the other two of you find, Ed and Ian, that you get some people who have made some important steps in this direction but begin to plateau? perhaps for a lack of deeper understanding of these processes, or are they just kind of looking for someone to give them a recipe or a technique that will take the step without having to do the critical thinking? Yeah, I think now that we're three, four years further down the line and this whole movement has progressed and more people have engaged, Ben's right, one of the, one of the most common phone calls now is, uh, I've tried and it's failed. Um, and invariably it's because when you look at all of the principles and practices involved in making this system work, they've chosen one of them or two of them to implement. And obviously, well, obvious to us, but not to them, it's gone, it's gone wrong. So yeah, for them, it's a, it's a case of just going back to basics and saying, well, that, hundred thousand pound drill that you've just bought isn't going to work unless you've done all of these things so let's go and start doing those things in order to to make the system work so yeah that is that is quite a common thing now mm. yeah and I, i'd see that quite often you know and ben summed up brilliantly you know i bought a direct drill brilliant well done that's going to solve all the problems and, they, and they, they look at it very narrow and it's usually a financial reason they've done it because they see they can save some money on cultivation so they buy a direct drill and it's happened a couple of times. People have come up to me and said, Ian, would you come on my farm? I bought a direct drill. Will you make it work? And I'm like, no, I really won't. <laughs> really sorry. But you, you, you really tried to short circuit the system. And the biggest barrier, which I think is also where this question leads us to, is that in doing uh, a, a different system on farm, you have to put more management time in. And that's where, again, they, some of it, again, is abdicating. They want to look at, say, Ben, Ed and I to come and do some of that management for them. And that's why they want to get it involved a bit like, you, you know, here's a ready-made solution. And they, there's a lot of people still thinking there are lots of ready-made solutions off the shelf. But it, it's, a, it's a mindset that is the solution. And that'll change on every farm that we're, we're, we're working on, which makes it very difficult to have a blueprint because there isn't one. Yeah, and I don't want to make it sound like we're picking on farmers here. All industries seem to be conditioned to look for recipes and solutions that follow a strict path and that follow a linear progression. And we've kind of all just been trained this way for quite a long time. But when it comes to the complexities and the nuances of managing a living system in ecology, that linear way of thinking is only going to get you so far. Is that I'm on the right track? Yeah, yeah, definitely on the right track. I think I think that that's where farming is unique in the fact that we are working we are working with nature. There's there's lots of other industries where um, you probably could apply some fairly linear thinking as long as it's the right thinking. But our, our industry is fairly unique in that you're you're working with a system that nobody's yet understood and probably never will. And, and, and you could apply one set of rules to it one day and there'd be completely the wrong set of rules the next day. Um, so 
yeah, it's, it's very it's very difficult to have that way of thinking and for it to succeed. Yeah, and I think I think we've been certainly uh, where systems we put in place it is very linear trial work to prove a point. You know, and, and I often joke, you know, we talk about soil science, but it's more like soil art, you know, soil music, whatever you want to call it. But the industry, and it's not farmers per se, it's the, it's the supply industry, has done very much more black and white, linear, you know, put it on, it kills it, put it on, it grows it. But that's very, com- what we're talking about is much more complex than just put it on and get an instant result because the unforeseen consequences are massive. We've we, we spent 80 years now, which is an awful long time being linear, where, where horsepower or, or, or packets and packets and cans have, have been able, able to do anything we, we wanted it to. The problem is what we've, what we've all of a sudden realised is how on earth have we gone from a 35 horsepower tractor doing, doing being the, the, the mainstay of the tractor on the farm to 350 horsepower, um, burning thousands of litres of diesel a day. Um, uh, and whereas a, 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 an occasional agrochemical or pesticide um, application to a year, something like that, has now turned into 40 um for, for various reasons so that that's the that's the problem and and what whilst that works on a linear scale for an awful lot and, and for a long time it's running out of running out that's the, that's where a lot of people are jumping off they can see that in actual fact at what stage do we actually our tractors can't get much bigger than 600 horsepower where, where we are now surely to goodness they can't you know we can't keep keep piling on so all of a sudden we've got to start looking at something very different Hmm. Well, so focusing back on the subject of soil, where all of this tends to come together, it's kind of the center of the diagram of so many different ecosystem processes. The first thing you have to do is to get a better understanding of it. And most people don't yet know how to properly diagnose the soil that they currently have. And what would you recommend as tools and tests on the market? Because there are so many which offer insights into a really wide array of data about soil. What's the most important information that you need to know about your soil and what are some of the tests that are required to get access to that? Ben, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll make a start. I'm just looking at my daughter trying to keep her to be as quiet as possible while she's some reason making her tea. Um, but, but interesting enough, it, it, and the reason I jumped on this is um, I, I met Ian, in actual fact, I think it was 2016, it might have been 2015. It was quite a while ago. But what was the the the, the in, it was the moment I realised that um, soils was was everything, but I didn't quite know where to start or where to go. And Ian Ian runs a sustainable soil management, and it's something I've used ever since. Um, and I, I I did a load of tests, and I'm so used to the, the soil index system um, that um, I really hadn't got a lot of faith in it, in anything. Anyway. I remember sending the, the, my, my soil samples off to Ian and um, we had a conversation in a Starbucks just outside Bambury, and I remember it ever so well. Uh, and he, he'd never been to my farm, but told me all about the way I farmed. He told me about my fields. He told me about what was yielding highest. He told me where my wet spots on my soil were. He told me an awful lot of information that I just could not believe when actually the, the, very, the very thing that people can actually calculate on, on soils is, is absolutely ginormous compared to what, what the norm is. Um, Ian, Ian will go in far more depth about that, but I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd throw it out there that 
for the first time ever, somebody was actually telling me from a piece of paper the way I farm and how I farm and that sort of thing, rather than in actual fact telling me I needed to buy X, Y, and Z. And I, and I, and that, that for me was one of those eureka moments. You know, agree. And I, I had to buy the coffee that day as well. Um, <laughs> it was a bad meeting for me. Um, the, which, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. The, the, a bit like in the introduction, I was talking about how we've been involved in it for about 20 years. The, the key with, with I think, with about a soil test is measuring things that have an effect within the soil that then you can understand why the soil is performing like it does. The, um, we've, we've made soil testing, uh, which is so important, into something that everyone gets for free. Uh, again, certainly in the UK, you get free soil tests of PK, PH, PH, uh, PK mag index and pH. So no one values a soil test. And they, they do it because they have to and they think it's a good use and then they go and put some nutrition on on the back of it. It's been way oversimplified. Whereas if we really focus on the key things that drive the physics of the soil, that will then allude to the biology of the soil. So even though we don't have all there's more biological soil tests out there now, even before we were doing that, we were measuring these at these parameters and say, well, this is like Ben's conversation. This soil is running wet. We will be dropping pH the whole time. Um, it's all, you know, it could be running dry or really hard working. And they're going, okay, that's, yeah, I know that. And I've been for trying to solve it with horsepower. But it's, it's, a, it's a, again, very uh, oversimplified way of looking at it. That the soil chemistry will affect the physics, the physics will affect the chemistry, and the biology then is hindered. And it all makes me very nervous at the moment that there's, there's a lot of people trying to jump on biology on its own. I'm slightly the other way around. I'd rather sort my physics and chemistry out you'll feel the dreams, you know, we will build it, they will come. And the, if we're not careful, biology is really, really, really important, but we've got to get some of the fundamentals right. Um, and that's where I think sometimes people are jumping too quickly into, oh, I want to be good and do biology. Well, let's stop a bit. It's that kind of, again, I use it too often when I speak to farmers and agronomists, just calm down, relax, take it easy. Let's figure out what we're trying to do rather than jump to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Um, so yeah, so the, the soil, soil testing is very important. It's, and again, it's measuring the you know calcium, magnesium, potassium, pHs, buffer pHs, organic matters, the different fractions of organic matters, because they again allude to how certain things cycle in the soil. Um, and it's a huge topic. And I know we've only got four hours to talk about it. So I'll, I'll, Ben and Ed will tell you. I'll just keep talking. I'll be here all night. Um, so someone interrupt me quickly. No, that's okay. I'll get you on a whole nother session after this some other time and we'll go real deep. Um, but okay, so this being a very wide topic, there must still be some fundamental things that growers should look for to understand before needing to get advanced degrees or a lot of professionals in to decodify the test results. What are the main things that they should have a grasp on before making any decisions, really. Ed, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I th as, as Ian and Ben have said, we've, we're coming from a pretty low starting point with, with soil testing. Um, so I think it's important not to look at anything in isolation. So, so some people within this sphere would say, oh, you, you need everybody needs a spade to go out and dig holes. That, that's brilliant and is really, really important. And I think every farmer should be armed with a spade and be digging holes on their farm on a regular basis. But 
doesn't necessarily always give you the full picture. It's important, but it's not it's not the be all and end all. So you might identify a problem or a difference between two fields, but that spade isn't going to tell tell you why you've got that that issue. So start off by by digging holes, assessing soils. Farmers seem to quite enjoy engaging with counting worms, which is great. Have you know? Have you got them? If so, how many? These, you know, digging a hole and counting worms, looking at soil structure are two really, really simple things. I think then it's important you can get bogged down with the amount of soil tests now that are out there. I think between the three of us, we've probably looked at most of them and have now settled on what is currently for us the most kind of affordable, uh, practical in order to complete but actually what gives you not too much data, but data that you, you can use. So I think it's about picking a soil test that goes beyond um, just the basics of index, you know, looking at all of the nutrients because they're all important. Something that includes organic matter, uh, perhaps explores organic matter in a bit more depth. And then I guess the last thing to add on would be some form of biological measure. Um, and there are more of these coming to the market now. Like I say we've we've looked at a few of them. So trying to get a grasp on on bio, biological activity in the soil as well. So I haven't got into specifics there because there's lots of stuff available. And obviously we use what we use. There are others out there. None of them are as good, hey Ian. <laughs> but uh, I think it's 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 really about putting the all the different elements of soil together, not just focusing on wonderful Look, thing it's the biology it's the chemistry it's the physics and three of them together give you a proper picture of what's what's happening i i i'd like to just add to that if that's okay uh, um one of the most important things for me is all of a sudden understanding that most tests for soil are there to measure the availability of an element to feed a plant that is a very very different thing than what have i got in my soil and what, what were, one of the massive revelations for me was, was the fact all of a sudden somebody was telling me that actually, as Ian touched on very briefly, the total level of magnesium, the total level of calcium, the total level of potassium drove the way my soul actually functioned as a thing. And it would take some correction of these to actually allow this um, functioning to, to happen. So my, my soul at home, is massively magnesium dominated, which means we've got some terrible squeezing going on in this saw, um, and it doesn't take very long for it to become very, very tight. And, and it's a sand as well, so it becomes extremely tight. And um, funny enough, it prevents the uptake of elements. And when you when you do a standard plant available food test, it tells me I've got plenty of everything. What it doesn't tell you is that when, when you're in a dry condition and my saw squeezes, um, there's, there's very little of anything that can move into a plant. So that, for me, the measure of totals in, in, a, in a soil, not just plant availables, was probably the biggest thing for me um, and, and, and understanding the functionality. And once you understand the functionality of those main elements that drive your soil structure, you can start to unpick those to actually allow um, biology. And what I've always found is, you need some type of chemistry. And when I say chemistry, I'm talking of, of calcium and potassium and, and magnesium. You need the correct chemistry in a soil or, or certainly try and rebalance um, some severe issues. You need to do some physical inter intervention 
often when you've come out of a very physical junky soil and all of a sudden that allows biology in and then it's the biology that can then take over and start driving the physics and the chemistry. But what you can't do is go from a physical chemis- chemical junky soil that, that we've been doing for 70, 80, 90 years and expecting biology just to run into this into the void. And it's, it's the weaning process of, 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 of um, chemistry and physics that, that makes a massive difference. I think you'll know you're on the right track with the soil test when it takes you more than five minutes to, to interpret it and make a decision off the back of it. You know, if you, if you get, a, you'll get an indexed soil test, it tells you you might need a tonne a ton to the acre of lime. You need 50 kilos of phosphate and 100 kilos of potash. You ring your salesman. It's on the farm next week. Five minute process. When you start to look at soils in proper detail and start doing proper soil tests, you, you, could, you could just have discussions around it and inter- interpret it and start to make management practices and decisions off the back of it for, for hours for a farm. And that leads to more questions. And then you need to go out and check this and that. And, it's, and you start to realise all the different elements of the process are involved. That's when you know you've got a soil test that's, that's of, of value. So, yeah, it's, you, you've got to go into more detail with it. Well, let me see if I understand this correctly, because it seems to be at odds with some of the popular teachings from some other regenerative soil scientists out there that say you can correct any deficiencies in your agricultural soils by introducing proper biology, by making uh, compost teas or compost and applying that there, which will fix the structure of the chemical issues. And what you're saying is it's the other way around. And to me, it sounds like the issue of, you know, putting a whole bunch of packaged probiotics or, you know, even um, probiotic foods into a gut, but not fixing the diet. And they won't, they won't remain established. They'll struggle to, to stick, so to say. Is, is that a good analogy? Does that I think I'd, I'd, I'd go with that. The, the biology will do it. I think it, it, we have the same issue with, with the physics, you know, because so I'm not going to put steel, I won't run a machine through it, I'll let my roots do it. Uh, that's wonderful. But most of the farmers that I work with have to make money. That's the, the big driver. They've got to make money. In, there are a few I work with, it's all good feeling and it's for the future, but the majority have got to make money. So... What we want to do is we want to enable them to understand the sort and then make the changes as quick as possible so they can reap the rewards in cash cropping. And I think that's, again, Ben, you might want to come in on this. This, this is a bit where I get, I'm quite adamant about that. Yes, biology will do it. It will. But it's the time scale that I want to do. I want to get this soil in the condition as quick as possible to allow the ubiquitous biology out there to get fired up. And I use it far too much. I walk around fields and we're in a horrible, let's say a magnesium field again, it's terrible soil structure. Five meters away, I've got a hedge. And the soil under that hedge is cracking, just differently managed for the last 50 years. Now, if you want to take 50 years to get there, good luck, my friend, go for it. But fundamentally, I want them to get them there the next three or four years, which is not just about the chemistry changing that, it's doing all the other parts with it. But we are, it may be an unpopular message. I am very commercial. I want my farmers to make money. That's really, really important. That's the biggest driver for me going on that farm. They have to be successful to allow us to, to move the whole system forward. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. I, I think one of the big things for me is um, memory loss. Um, most people that are on this journey 
have read Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soul, and, and, and it's a fantastic book. We're all, all nodding. I, I don't understand what happens between the start of reading that book and the end, that, that, that people forget that he failed for four years in a row. Um, and he had to go out and work and, and, and graft, and so did his wife, and it was all very, very horrifically, not very, not very, but by the end of it, everyone's thinking it's all roses and bird life and, 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 and skipping off into the sunset. No, he went four years with making no money on that farm. And if you've got four years of, of pretty much planting cover crops, because that's essentially what he did, um, that, that's fantastic. And, and that's the first thing I say to people of Red Gabe's book and said, this is as wonderful as it gets. And you think, yeah, have you done your four, four years of failure yet? Four years of cover cropping. No, I can't. Right. In which case, biology absolutely 100% can do the job. But for goodness sake, you've got to have some patience for that to do. So what we do is try and facilitate that. What we're trying to do is earn a living in that transitional phase. Um, that is the hardest thing for me, just jumping off a cliff and expecting biology to live in a magnesium-dominated soil. You or an overcalcium, or, or, or high potassium, whatever the problem is on these soils. You, you, we have to manage a profit. Um, it, it's really quite important. The, there is bi biology, or what, you know, what we're referring to as biology, added biology, um, is a living thing, and it's got to have somewhere it wants to live. So there is absolutely no point trying to take a shortcut by applying um by applying biology to a completely hostile environment, you've got to start to address why you haven't got the biology there in the first place. So yeah, build, build it and they will come. And then once you've got a situation where you think that biologies will, be, will begin to thrive, then potentially you can start to think about adding, adding things in. But until you create that environment for it to thrive, then there's absolutely no point trying to, trying to make the effort shortcutting that process yeah that makes a lot of sense and it also makes a lot of sense if you're gearing this towards keeping a farm business running in what is otherwise a pretty treacherous transition process especially when you couple that with a very steep learning curve from someone who is not used to these concepts or the mindset required to do it well and this has really been exacerbated uh, especially this year i mean we're looking at massive increases in input costs, chemical input costs, to say nothing of fuel and the feed for animals, all like agriculture is having quite a moment right now and it is looking shaky. I would imagine that you're going to be getting a lot of interest soon from people who are figuring out that their businesses are on the threshold, even if they haven't figured it out yet. And that the trajectory of these high input costs is going to lead them to ruin. What do you tell to people who are coming to you in that emergency stage? Do you have the confidence and the, the experience at this point that they can save the money necessary and still get a good yield on a crop within one, two, three years, what it would require to make a real transition in a cropping operation? So you wanna take on that big question? <laughs> yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, Interesting enough, yeah, we, a lot of, lot of, you can imagine this, yeah, as you just said, with input costs, phone and emails daily, you, you know, oh, I want to reduce my nitrogen, right, absolutely fantastic. What have you done, what have you done to prepare for this? Nothing, right, the chances are you're going to really struggle in this year, if not next year, to reduce your nitrogens because everything is completely and utterly wrong. 
And one analogy I use an awful lot to people is go and buy yourself a heifer calf, a young calf, four weeks old. And by the time you've reared that calf up to the age of bulling, and you put a bull on it at 14 to 18 months, and then she's pregnant for nine months, and then she has another calf, and that calf is reared up to fat. In other words, about four to four and a half years. That's about as long as it takes for soils to get anywhere near an area that I would confidently say we, we're, we're making progress, and we can start to reduce nitrogen, for instance, things like that. You cannot rush an animal into doing anything more than what that is, um, and what, what most people do is try and rush everything else. So I think having an animals and, and, and part of my integration of animals into regenerative agriculture is to slow people down because it's like, has that calf had a calf yet? No. So why are you buying a drill? Because you're not ready. You know, you just got it. And, and, it, and, and Ian said, slow down, calm down. You know, unfortunately, if you're late into this party, you cannot just jump start, quick start, find a find a no way. It it, it is a slow process. It it is a weaning process. You've got to remember we have got chemical and physical junky soils. I've um I've had one or two rare occasions where I've gone onto farms and thought, wow, you lucky people, you've got some really nice soils in, in very good condition, just please start farming them properly. And though on those sorts of farms, you could probably start to make some real inroads, and we are making real inroads really quickly. But in the vast majority of cases, as Ben said, it's a, it's a four or five-year process minimum. Um, so nobody can really come in and, and slash input levels overnight without having fairly disastrous consequences. But... What we can do is start to do things a bit cleverer um, and that's where you know lots of things that the three of us are working on around and, and particularly around nitrogen are, are, are making sure the plant's got what it needs but doing it in a cleverer way and, and quite often more cost effective way um, but there's no escaping the fact that you, you've you, that if, if you're if you've got soils and crops which are still nitrogen dependent you, you can't just stop doing it overnight if you want to keep producing profitable crops I think it's a really valid point, Ed, about the, doing it a cleverer way. Broad acre crops, it's harder. Uh, certainly with all the, the protected cropping or salad cropping, veg, et cetera, we work with. Most people are, again, massive generalisation, historically been putting on more nutrients than the crop needs as an insurance. So when you start breaking into soil testing and look at what they're doing, we've got some very quick wins, you know, sub two years, where we've significantly reduced the amount of nutrients they're applying by changing cultivations, cover cropping, those type of things, um, which is really easy on, on protected or high, high value. Um, because they're willing sometimes to invest that time and effort. On Broadacre, it's, it's, it is a slow burn because there tends to be um, larger acreage, so there's, there's more management time involved. So sometimes you don't quite get the um, speed of transition that we want them to do, although I say calm down, but we still need to do something and they don't always do it. So it's, it is a longer, longer burn on Broadacre for sure. So let's get a more accurate expectation of what this transition process looks like. It's not gonna happen overnight, we've established that, but at the same time, we also established that they can't take three, four, five years without making a living in order to make that transition. So how do you start to wean off of the inputs and the destructive practices without compromising what is required to keep the business afloat? 
I'll start with a really simple <laughs> way of this, and I'll let the others go into more detail. Um, yeah, I, I laugh about this with with colleagues and and, and farmers sometimes. That my my job is really really simple. First of all, I go onto farm and I understand as much as I possibly can what they've currently got. So that goes back to the to the soil. What are you farming? What conditions are currently in, and how do we need to do it better? Then I go back to the five, although I know Gabe now has his six key principles and I'll take those five or six key principles and I'll implement them to the letter on every single thing that you do as best we possibly can. And that's recipe for success. It's, 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 it's not failed yet. Now there's huge amounts of detail behind all of that, of course, but simplistically that is what it is. Know what you have, know how it needs to be managed and implement those practices as best you can. And that is the transition process. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll expand a little bit on that, sir. And, and I'll expand, and I'll tell you the part I'm going to expand on is, is, is the first principle of regenerative agriculture, limited disturbance. Um, and what I find amazing on this limited disturbance, people read the first three words, um, do not disturb the soil, and then stop. It also says, do not disturb it chemically, physically, or mechanically. Um, and what I find very strange is that people will go and buy a direct drill and still use a seven-way herbicide stack and still give 150, 200 kilos of nitrogen and, 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 and everything else. But of course, they're regenerative because they've got a, a drill that now, now is direct. Now, for me, the weaning process is actually... Um, little bit less cultivation, year one, less nitrogen, less, an, an awful understanding the, the soil test results, starting to make some of the, uh, the, the chemistry you have in the soil, phosphate and, and potassium, more available. Start using organic manures, things like that. Reduce the amount of herbicide you use, perhaps use a hoe rather than a, a herbicide, that sort of thing. Um, start looking at plant health through sap analysis and that sort of thing, so start buffering through nutrition, so you, you remove fungicides uh, or certainly massively reduce fungicides. And, and do you see what I mean? It, it's very much for me a, a balancing act of reducing everything, everything in, 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 in sync rather than seem to just leap into this one very small part and then wondering why, in actual fact, your, your, your weed resistance has got, got worse or your herbicide use has gone up, not down, because in actual fact, you need to do everything in, in, in moderation. The other thing for me is the diversity of livestock and animals. Um, you, you know, the more, the more animals and the di more diverse animals you can get on the place, all of a sudden you can manage an awful lot of weeds with those. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, Ben. I'm, I'm a little bit more particular. Uh, if you go back to soil chemistry bit slightly, um, just because it says magnesium, potassium, boron, copper on the tin, they will all work completely different in different soils. And that's where the, Ben touched on it. The soil test is really important to understand how nutrients will perform in your soil. So you can get some quite quick wins when you're um, looking at some of the inputs that people are putting on that are really ineffectual. And you can say, well, actually, that type of phosphorus do not use. You want using this type, for argument's sake. Or why are you putting that type of lime on when you should be in this type of lime? Or why are you liming at all? It's a structural issue. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we do because we think we should, they're the right things to do. We've been to college and we've had advisors telling us we should be doing these things. 
but it's about understanding the soil again. So, well, actually, do you know what? Your soil shouldn't be doing this. Why is it? And at that point, you can make some quite dramatic savings, or sometimes you spend a bit more to facilitate to release what is in your soil. Um, and at that point, you're not you're not you're not impinging on yield. You know, when, I know we're focusing on nitrogen, we're talking about nitrogen, but yields do not have to suffer if you do the holistic thought process rather than just what people are doing at the minute is cut. I want to cut out, I want to take it out, take it out. Well, don't, please don't do that. And it's a phrase, a terrible phrase, but I use it all the time. It's one of my roles on farm is to make the farmer advisor an educated purchaser because I don't believe we'll ever be at a stage that we're never going to buy something on the farm. We, you know, we will need some inputs to come on. So we need the person who is the purchaser to understand how those uh, inputs will perform on their farm and make sure they are buying the right form of that input, whether it's a fungicide or a herbicide or a nutrition or organic matter, to make sure that it's building rather than just maintaining the, the, the soil's ability to perform for us. It makes me wonder what sort of myths or misconceptions about managing soil you're fighting against when you give this new information to someone who's coming to it for the first time. I think one of the most amazing things for me, and, and Ian and Ed can expand on this, but uh, phosphate, for instance, and phosphate um, availability, and understanding the role of pH, the understanding the role of calcium, the understanding the role of uh, organic matter, and, and all of that, and the amount of phosphate that might may or may not be available to a plant is some is just one example. Perhaps Ian expand on how calcium pH organic matter uh, uh, plays a massive part in that yeah phosphate is a good one to pick on we, we, we have a thing called legacy phosphate in the UK where in simple terms we've applied more phosphate to the soil than we've removed since I don't know two I think it's um, 1940 so we've built up a huge amount of phosphorus in our soil that is usually complexed with calcium magnesium iron etc so when the standard index soil test is done, it doesn't really pick it up. So it's a bit like saying we've got a massive fridge freezer, a chest freezer, you know, a you know, huge chest freezer of food in, or, or phosphorus in the soil. Uh, we need through management practices to get that food or the phosphorus out of the freezer through a microwave, a gas cooker, sit it on the side. I don't care how you do it, but there's different things on different farms will take that frozen food and make it available for us to eat. And that's where the whole management, management part comes in. And that's those kind of thought processes or those that kind of knowledge, it's known about, but it's not overly talked about on UK farms. So when you start talking, people go, wow, that makes so much sense because I've been applying phosphorus and I've, my indices haven't been going up. And you look at it and the buffer pH of that soil is eight. It's got tons and tons and tons of free calcium carbonate. The only phosphorus we've been applying is getting complex really quickly. And at that point, so well, our management strategy for phosphorus here must be to work on how we do phosphate liberation through microbial activity, root hair acidity. What can we do when we drill our crops to get a little bit of acidity there to let the crop? Because if you again, you take the hedge analogy, I will go into a field with a high pH and I'll have a wheat crop or barley crop that's phosphate deficient. Three meters away. I've got a hawthorn tree and grass on the same soil type, but it's not phosphate deficient. Same soil, but something totally different is going on in that soil. And they're, they're the kind of 
the bits that we want to we want to try and bring in. Organic matter is another one. Um, we can talk about you know everyone tell and I get very you know, on my high horse by this. Everyone keeps telling me I need to build organic matter in my soil. And I go why? I want my soil to cycle my organic matter. I go to some of the worst performing grass fields you'll ever see. They've got 12% organic matter, constipated, choked, just not cycling. But everyone thinks that's really, really good news. And it comes back down to that, well, I, we're not after that. Yes, a good level of organic matter in your soil is brilliant. But actually, I want that organic matter to be respired, to release some carbon dioxide for my plant to drink, to release humus, to release boron, copper, zinc, calcium, nitrogen into the soil to feed my crop. Uh, these are a lot of things that we all know, but actually we've conveniently chosen to ignore. And that it, it does surprise me when I have a three generational farming family and he talked to it and granddad, who's the thick end of 98, was looking at like, like me going, I knew I was right. You know, he knew it all, but he didn't really know it all, but do you know what I'm saying? He, just, he, he gets it. And I, I'm quite open about the fact, I say to a lot of farmers, I'm not telling you anything new, maybe in a slightly different way, but it's how soils function that we've kind of, I believe we've forgotten. We've kind of looked at in one dimensional chemical analysis or straight physical analysis. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good point, Ian. I th think it's amazing how little recognition there is of the fact that, that people's soil is a living thing. More, more than just a substrate for them to manipulate and grow crops in the way that they want to want to grow it. Um, it's easy for us who've done a lot of work and read around and, and learned about soil to, to say, well, how do you not know that it's this massive complex living thing? But I'm talking about not, not even the knowledge going beyond the fact that there's more than PK and magnesium and sand and clay in soil. So for a lot of the time it's introducing people to the fact that, you know, this, this thing that you manipulate to, to your means and you grow your crops in each year that's all of a sudden now starting to let you down a bit is your is your biggest and most important asset on the farm or as ian sometimes says it can it can also be your biggest liability um so starting to to take account of the fact that this thing that we've never really had an appreciation of the value of is the thing that will help you get to where you need to be and is your, the most important thing for you to manage on the farm um and it's and it's a living thing and, it, and it's, it's amazing the, the sort of, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but the, the lack of, 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 of appreciation that what they're, what they're farming and what they're managing is a living thing. And once they start to appreciate that and understand it and treat it in that way, then that, that mindset starts to completely shift. Yeah, ultimately yeah. it does keep coming back to that mindset. Go ahead, Ben. No, I'm I, I, I just... Just thinking. Um, the other thing, um, like Ed said, is, is explains to people this the dollars thing. The the other thing that I find amazing is lack of knowledge from a lot of people on the interaction of plants and soil, and the fact that actually uh, roots are not there just to suck up minerals. Roots are there first and foremost to exude huge amounts of root exudates. To feed the biology that in turn go and and when when <laughs> and when you're telling um, some people this, uh, they look at you as though you're some kind of alien. That, that this, this 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 thing is is you, you tell me what, and and you talk about it. And unfortunately, I have a photo of a vessel 
that captured all the root exudates out of a plant, uh, out of um, 14 wheat plants in the, in the, sorry, 12 wheat plants in the first 14 days of growth. And it's an awful lot of root exudates coming out. And I have a photo of this vessel and it's one I use in nearly every presentation I make and explain that in actual fact, when you consider that we are all livestock farms, and I do not care whether you are above ground, ground or below ground livestock, if you own livestock, if you own a dog, if you even have children, and if you do refuse to feed them, funny enough, they die. And it's exactly the same with everything that's living in your soil. If you remove plants, they will inevitably die. So in actual fact, the most important thing we can ever do is keep our livestock above and below ground fed. And funny enough, in return, they generally drive you a profit. It's mm. a really, really good point, Ben. It's, a, it's kind of like the drop, a drop the mic moment when you're doing presentations and you remind everyone that soil is 45% mineral, 5% organic matter, 25% air, 25% water. And they kind of look at you and go, yeah, I know that. And then you just say to them, well, did you realise your soil is 50% not mineral? It's empty, it's air or water. And they kind of look at you and it literally, they drop, they go, wow. And that's then what leads to Ben's point is that with that air and water allows the microactivity to happen, allows the plants to grow. Now, I believe a lot of people have, uh, got confused about the air and water part because if you ever get your soil textured your sand silk clay fraction if you add them up it adds up to 100 so i think and lots of people like agronomists are like say yeah, that makes sense i always thought it was 100 percent sand silk clay <laughs> so there's been a again it's just it's oversimplistic but the the fact that getting that um structure right and i think ben and i were talking about this the other day i spend more time not talking about chemistry now simply talking about 0.003 millimeter structure of my soil that is your driver that allows for the air and the water there that allows for as ben put the roots to get there that then pump all the exudates out to build aggregation and suddenly that's one of the most important parts of anyone that wants to go down a regenerative farming process is think about microstructure rather than massive structure it gets really exciting then it does indeed. One of the analogies that I was given to think about this is kind of the way that economies work. There's money flowing in an economy, but if it stops to flow, if there are no interactions or transactions, well, it doesn't do any good if it just sits in a bank account, much like putting things into a soil. And I mean, even to soil organic matter or carbon, if it is being sequestered, that means it is not cycling. It does not have a function and things start to stagnate, much like you mentioned, but it continues to be looked at as a one-way street. You just put things in, plants grow, you sell the plants off somewhere else. But respecting that this is a living ecosystem that has cycles and these things need to stay active for it to function is, is fundamental to grasping this concept. Now, I want to go a little bit into a different realm, which is closer to people management. Because all of the information can <laughs> inform all of the techniques or management practices that you could ever recommend, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to implement them or they are going to implement them in the way that you suggest. And I have heard this both from consultants and a lot of talk within even the agricultural industry that it doesn't matter how good the advice is, if it is not applied, it's... <laughs> It's not going to do or make any difference. 
Where is that disconnect? I can't imagine this is blanket statement for all the people that you work with, but I'm sure you've come across. It doesn't matter how much advice or learning that you give someone, it doesn't necessarily translate to action on the field. Have you gotten some insights into where that disconnect is happening and what might be in that mindset? Yeah, I've got loads, <laughs> funny enough. Um, there's a couple of things for me. Number one, um, there's a saying in the UK, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Um, in, in, in other words, um, you, you have, um, we've, we've, we've talked about this word mindset all evening. And one thing for absolute certain, you have to want to be part of a change in order to embrace the, the, this whole whole um, different way. And let's be honest, there's an awful lot of this farming technique where we're telling them the opposite of what they would generally do. It's, it, it's, a, it's a massive mindset to get your head around that, that this, this fact of opposite farming. Uh, or, or shall I say, in actual fact, what, what, what we should do is try and persuade them to do an acre. I think we spoke uh, briefly, um, I'm not sure, I'm sure whether that was recording about um, Ed's potato trials this year, which sound really exciting. An acre of, of as far regen as he could possibly ever go. Those are the learning things and the confidence builders in, in doing exactly what we're after. What, what people need to do is, is exactly that. The other thing, and one of the biggest barriers for me is, we have an awful lot of conversations in December and January, or even let's say out of season, sort of June, July, August. And we're all very excited about, about the future. And it comes to that day of drilling and it comes to that, um, that, that day it's all going to happen. And they literally just frighten themselves away from doing exactly what, what everything was discussed because the norm, whilst, it, it, whilst it's not hugely profitable, they know they're not gonna lose and they are petrified of just making that, that, that massive, massive change. Um, they're the, probably the two things for me that probably drive the most um, resistance. And, I, and, and, and one of them is financial and the other one is, 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 is mindset. But they, they would be the two, two for me. And by the look of the absolutely silence, the other two have got nothing to add to that at all. Look at them. I'm, I'm just... I'm just going to add, I can't let you finish on that, Ben. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that... One of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the things I have found is that UK... Uh, the advice stream on farm has always... Been, a lot of advice has been given for free. Um, and... We, we as, as going back to blimey, about 2012, I think it was, we did a lot of soil testing and then we're giving advice just on the back of that. And then we decided actually, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to start charging for our time sensibly on farm. As soon as we did that, the uptake of our advice went through the roof because people actually put a value to it and said, well, actually, I've paid him to come onto the farm. I paid him X. So actually, we're going to actually take some action now because I've, I've made an investment and it was quite interesting at the time people say it'll never it'll never take off people won't pay for advice actually they do if it's good advice admittedly um and so that was one of the barriers i see and even now you can spend a lot of time talking to people but if, if unless they see a value to it they won't tend to take action on it free has no value it's as simple as that go on yeah, ed, come on ed go higher 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 <laughs> 
it's such a difficult subject is people's mindset and, it, and it's it's something that fascinates me and amazes me all, all the time and frustrates the hell out of me most days um you know i, th- I think part of it, uh, ben and ian and myself because of what we do and and what have you we get the position we get the opportunity to talk to to people quite often who aren't necessarily yet convinced that it's the right path to take so we we're an active part of trying to extol the benefits of this kind of system to people but then we also then get some of those people from that that audience coming back to us to then say right how do i implement it but that's the really key thing is that they've they've come to you and said i want to do this i'm committed even if it's not fully wholeheartedly there's got to be something there that they've they've read something they've listened to something they've understood something that's made that sort of switch flick in their head to think right i'm going to commit in some way to doing things differently and as long as you've got that that you've got something there to work with and i know ben and i joke about it all the time and we spend our lives advice giving people advice which they ignore i don't i don't think that's sort of true entirely but definitely i I would have said 70 percent 60 70 percent of what i advise people gets listened to and implemented the other 30 40 percent gets ignored but quite often eventually does get listened to because they've gone out they've made the mistake and then realized that that actually you were you were right and i'm not saying you know we're right all the time we're still learning as much as anybody um but as long as there's that spark of something in somebody that they're they're, they're keen to change, keen willing to try, then then that's the that's the key thing. And there is there always has to be an element of people going and making their own mistakes. You can't as much as you you try, you can't prevent people from from doing that completely. They have to go out and try things and, and learn for themselves. That's all really interesting, and it seems to contribute to this that for a long time and definitely will be in the future, farming is a, is a highly risky profession. There are so many variables. There are so many things that you really can't control. And there's a high degree of complexity as much as our societies and cultures may undervalue the vast amount of skill sets that are required to successfully run a farm business. And for a long time, that has conditioned them to be risk adverse and to double down on the things that they know that will work just to keep going through all of the difficulties of what's inherent to the job. And it's quite likely what's contributing to an aversion to taking on any more risk than is necessary. Much like Ben was alluding to, you know, better the evil that you know than something that you're unfamiliar with. And so there must be an element in communicating with people where you have to assure them and help to de-risk the situation, maybe by doing small test plots or, you know, are there any other techniques that you have found helpful in this? It seems like a very touchy and very context-specific or person-specific subject. I think I think that concept of trying a small a small area is, you know, is probably one of the best. You know, if you're not prepared to commit on the whole farm, quite often, quite rightly, then commit on a quarter of it, an eighth of it. Do 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 something and learn off that, and then implement it across the rest. That that concept certainly works. Um, but then, uh, and the exactly. other th- the other thing is that is like the the easy wins, the quick wins. Every farm's got them, so you can. We we could walk on a farm tomorrow. 
understand the system, understand what they're up to, and you could point out one, two, three, four plus things that are easy wins. You can do that, change that tomorrow. Here's the benefit and the risk to your business is minimal to none. Yeah, I agree. Small, small areas again is one of the easiest ones is the high value cropping cultivation. You know, do it, do it differently, but do a couple of breeds up the field or a couple of a tram line or so. And uh, monitor it. You know, look, look and see what's going on. And every again, every time we've done that, pretty much every time we've done that, we we've had success, surprisingly successes. Well, we've always had to let's say cultivate it. Well, no, we don't. Um, and I think the, the important part of what, what Ben, Ed, and I do is that I can't think of any other way to hold it. It's like holding hands. We don't, the three of us, we don't hold hands very often. But as a farmer, we will hold the hand to understand, to do something and then monitor it rather than just right, go and do that and walk away. We keep coming back. What, what are we looking for? What are we trying to see? What are we looking at the changes for? And even if it's as simple as going out and counting some worms or looking at what true structure should be or looking how well the root architecture is growing, or sap analysis to see how the plant health's improved, et cetera, et cetera. We, it's really important. You don't, we don't throw advice out there, go and do it, and then walk away. We have to monitor what we're doing on those areas that we're, we're, we're changing on. I think we, we've, we've kind of become used to insurance policies in farming, and it starts right from planting a seed, you know. We'll take out the insurance policy of doing lots of cultivation so that our plants establish well. We'll then take out the insurance policy of putting a seed treatment on it just in case there's something in the soil that wants to eat it or, or, or kill that plant. Then, then we'll put on insurance policies in the form of fertilizers, herbicides, fungicides. And we'll get, and if we do all of those insurance policies, we'll get a yield and, and we'll make money at the end of it. So if you're going to start to remove those insurance policies you've, you've got to put a plan in place as to, as to why you don't need them so if you want to take away a particular input what are the three or four things that you're going to do to make sure that you don't need that input and if you do them then it's then the risk isn't there i think the, the greatest the greatest oxymoron within farming is plant protection products they do totally the opposite and they certainly don't protect your profit agreed all right, so where do you find the most pushback and resistance to healthy soil management practices? Are there certain ones that have just been so ingrained in agriculture at this point that they're the hardest to get over when you suggest doing the opposite? I, I can make a start on this. I, I, I don't, I'll be absolutely honest, and I, I rarely these days have to convince my clientele. Um, I'm normally approached by people that are already wanting um, to change or make a change um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that Ian and Ed are on the same sort of journey. I think farmers, and I include my father and my late father in this, are, are fairly bloody-minded people and to drag them um, to change is almost impossible. Um, what you have to do to, to a certain extent, and I, I am very similar in that mindset, is challenge them that they can't change. And when you actually say to somebody, I bet you can't, the chances of most farmers turning around and trying to prove you totally and utterly wrong is far greater than saying you must change and this is how you will change. Um, so in actual fact, that again, it's a, it's, a, it's a game of words, but certainly if you are after a farmer to change the way, 
he's doing something, you bet them that they possibly there is no possible way they could give up ploughing. I'll guarantee within two years there's no plough on that farm. And that is by far the easiest way of, of, of actually trying to lead a, a farmer to do uh, or, or, or to make change. So, um, yeah, um, that, that for me is, I guess, um, where I'd come from from that in terms of pushing back on resistance. Oh, look at him, just nodding. Yeah, let's try and find the mute button, Ben. Don't worry, I've got plenty to say. I've <laughs> only been talking for an hour, I've got another three to go. Um, uh, yeah, I think the, it, it's the, again, a horrible thing, it's, it's that educate rather than legislate. It, it, start talking to, to groups of farmers or individual farmers or even agronomists about what, what the possibility is. There's a lot of people you can see sort of fold their arms straight away. Not for me, not for me, but by the nature of what we're talking about, it's quite generic. Um, and they, you then start talking to someone on an individual basis um, about you know what are you doing and why are you doing it and that is no there's no fault laying here it's about understanding what they're doing and what they're driving to do what the driver is for them to do that and actually slightly unpicking it a bit okay well that's fine did you realize you could do you know there is there are other ways and at that point you can see that the arms slightly unfold and you you, you get a lot more engagement the worst thing you can do ever is say what well, this is what you should do as ben was saying earlier that just turns switches everyone off and you never get them to to, to to do any change um and the other part i find out quite often is there's so much knowledge on farm and it, it's tapping into it so well you could do this oh actually you know what we're going to do it slightly differently again brilliant and ownership has now been taken to, to make a change but if there's no will or want to change, and we believe we're in the right place now, however much talking Ben, Ed and I do, we won't get the change. Um, however, we're very fortunate in that virtually everyone we speak to, not always, but virtually, every, virtually everyone we speak to want to make a change. And that's why the, 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 phone, the phone's ringing to Ben, Ed and I, so let's get on with it. That said, there's quite a lot of people I will, I will do presentations to and say, no. And at that point, you go, well, it's a challenge to me. I love that. Let's figure out, okay, why, why don't you want to change? What is so right about what you're doing? And then it becomes great fun. We, we've all had those kind of places, haven't we, Ed? Ben, you know, we've all... Let, let, let's not forget, there are still some very good, successful farms farming conventionally. So until, until such a point that they can't do that anymore, why would they change? Why should they change? Um, I mean, I, I, I take quite a strong controversial view on this in, in that um, farm, farms are businesses, but unlike lots of other businesses and industries, up until now, they've been, they've always had a crutch. They've always had subsidies. So actually, at the end of the day, they can farm really how they want to, and they'll be propped up. But we're entering an era of farming now where they're not going to have that. So they're a business in the truest sense where they, they have to stand on their own two feet. They're competitive against against their, their the other people in their industry, and it's going to be a case of survival of the fittest. And if you're if you're poor if you're poor businessman and you're running a poor business, you won't you won't survive. And that's the same in any other industry. So why should it be any different in farming? So you know, ultimately, they're going to have to adapt and implement some form of change to how they do things if it's not currently successful in order to survive going forwards. And that's you know that might seem quite harsh. Um, but that's the reality of it. 
Now, I'll always obviously help someone that's there and wants to be helped. I'm not just dismissing people that that don't want to engage, but that's that's the nature of it. They 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 kind of going to have to, or they'll or they'll fall by the wayside. I think. Well, so it seems to me that the risk is that you already have a lot of people coming to each of you ready to make the change and that could end up becoming somewhat of an echo chamber, which isn't to say that you don't get out of it and you don't encounter people who are not as receptive or coming to you first for information. But as much as business is booming right now, it's still a very small percentage of all of the land, not only in the UK, but in Europe and the rest of the world that is probably waking up and starting on this journey at the moment compared to what needs to happen for this industry to really change. What gives you hope that this is moving in the right direction? Or conversely, do you think that it's going to be, uh, you know, growth of uh, input costs or fuel costs that eventually are just going to make the alternative unfeasible? I mean, I'm confident in so much as if you look at my inbox, Every day I get home uh, of, of people inquiring how, how they can change their farming methods. Um, and this is not just UK basis. I, I, I work in Estonia and Portugal, Spain, um, US, Poland, and a few other places. Um, so it, it's certainly not just this is UK based. There are people asking more and more questions. Um, of course, this has been pushed more and more by fertilizer now costing a thousand pounds a ton for nitrogen diesel up at £1.30 a litre um, for agricultural fuel, £1.30, £35 even. Um, it's, it's certainly pushing change as well. Um, the other thing that gives me total confidence is um, the fact I, I, I sort of set up a little consultancy business of my own with Jim Ben, um, only 18 months ago, getting up two years ago now, um, with the slight concern that, that, that you're absolutely right, this is a tiny percentage and will it do anything? Um, I wish I could morph myself six times over because there was enough work. There's more than enough I work don't. for. for... <laughs> don't, please don't, 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 don't do that. The world is not big enough for another region, Ben, or four of you. Please don't. They make a fair point, to be fair. Um, <laughs> there, 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 yeah, there's only room for one. Um, but there is, there is. I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing of, of Ed's position is he is now going to start educating more. What we're lacking at the moment is more agronomists that can actually provide the correct advice. Um, and I've seen an awful lot of, I, I'm slightly concerned about the amount of, misinformation that's given on the back of I can give you regional advice and it really is quite poor. Um, the one thing with Ed is I have full confidence in exactly everything he, he, he does and is we speak like I said daily um, between the three of us quite an awful lot so what he's going to instill into in, in, as a training program to further agronomists is, is, is something for me quite exciting. Praise indeed. <laughs> yeah I think it's, 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 it's an important point, Ben, that um, part of the role that Ed and I are doing uh, within uh, Hutchinson's of Distributors is putting training programmes together to train some, not all, but, but a significant amount of their agronomists if they want to take you to understand it, because it is, it is about education. It is about training. Also, there's a, there's another, and it's a terrible phrase, sort of regen light type bit, you know, which is that there's, 
that there's a lot of people that want in, not let's go all the way, but actually are realizing that the fundamental farming practice they're doing now may could be done better. Um, and that's where where I'm really excited about the number of phone calls, not less about going all the way with like integrating livestock, but actually wanting to make a change. And that's where we need to do it in a, rather than just jump from one product to the next. It's actually what you want to change your system and change it for the better rather than just jumping off of input junkie to the next input junkie. And that's that's something we have to just be mindful of as well, is, is that whilst we are fully bought into and passionate about this this whole subject, if we can just not label it, not try and implement it in in whole hog fashion and actually just take out two or three things that will make a big difference to that individual business, the environment itself around that farm, um, then that's enough. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to always be the whole hog. It doesn't always have to be labelled one thing or another. If, if it's just a case of taking some of the key principles out of this area, implementing it on a farm and making enough of a difference to that farm, then, then that's, that's good enough. Um, and we just got to be mindful sometimes. And some, it's something that people in this, in this sphere get are, are guilty of sometimes in being too sort of evangelical and, and too militant about certain principles and practices. And it, it puts people off and it's also not really, it's not realistic um so we just that 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 is potentially a barrier to to uptake i think of some of these principles sometimes um so that's quite an important factor yeah that makes sense and what would each of you say to people who are listening to this who are interested in helping to accelerate or just assist in this transition whether they have access to land or not well that's a question how, how should they change the world <laughs> Uh, it's probably the easiest one it's just, just get in touch with us oh. everyone's different isn't it everyone's poetry yeah, simple <laughs> nailed it even ben can't reply to that look he's scratching his head <laughs> <laughs> well what got, have we just that, that's got to be possibly the worst answer i've ever heard ever <laughs> i'm very good at giving those don't worry I'll keep them i mean what a load of fluff and rubbish um <laughs> Uh, I, I guess there's an awful lot of people that know farmers, general public. So in actual fact, just keep asking the questions. I think that one of the things for me, for, for, from a farming point of view, is, is when, when, when you get asked quite a difficult question, what are you doing? You know, I've heard about this regenerative ag, why, what, what is it? Why are you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? And, and, and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, it, I tell you, it, it's quite interesting that farmers will listen, certainly to friends and colleagues and that sort of thing, and actually start start asking more questions to other, others if they've been asked themselves. Um, so, so something that applies to lots of things in life, not not just um, trying to move towards better farming. Is some, sometimes it's easy to think, well, what's the point in just me doing something because that's not going to make a big enough change for all the problems we've got, but actually you've got to ask yourself, how many people do you know? Do you know 500 people? Do you know 1,000 people? If you have conversations around this sort of stuff with two, three, 400 people, 500 people, they all know the same amount of people that they might go then and talk to about it. And it's that, it's that pushing out of a message and an information 
through a whole network rather than worried about you individually trying to change an entire industry or an entire ethos around doing something. It's, it's having enough of an influence, not as Ben says, not just to, to farmers, to friends, colleagues, people you meet in the pub, whatever. It's, 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 it's having the right conversations and pushing the right messages through. And eventually, you know, you get that, you get that momentum shift. Can't, I can't see any more. That's it. Drop the mic. Job done. Um, it's, it's the old, it's the old nudge thing, isn't it? I think it's really, really important. L- little snippets of conversations with all sorts of people. And one of the companies Ben and I are working with, while we're working with all the growing teams, we're actually presenting to the the marketeers, the accounts people, all the people in the business to actually understand it. So there we then you get more ripples all the way out. Um, and they may not fully understand, or they don't need to, but they need to understand the concept and the principle of what we're trying to do. And that, 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 that goes everywhere then. Brilliant. You guys' inboxes aren't full enough. You're going to start getting inquiries for being life coaches now. And speaking of that... <laughs> Jesus. It's frightening. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Ed? Uh, yes, yeah, so they can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm uh, Ed, Ed C.T. Brown. I'm also on Instagram, uh, E.B. Agroecology. Both those places and they can find me or email. Super. Ian? Um, I don't do Twitter. Um, I have an email address, <laughs> quite old-fashioned, uh, which is basically ian at soiladvice.com. Um, we have a website, soiladvice.co.uk. Um, so, yeah, just drop us an email. I, I do reply. Nice. And then? Ian's lying, he rarely replies, he's, he's rarely <laughs> on time. But for you guys on the continent, so if you're from Spain and Portugal, it, you, you, you'll find it absolutely fine. It's only for us Brits that, that, that insist on a reply within 30 seconds of, of actually sending an email. Um, um, yeah, um, um, how can people get in touch with me? Google, there's, there's hundreds of um, links. Um, Twitter is, is one thing. I, I'm actually off Twitter a little bit at the moment because I just don't have time. But I do check my um, my inbox on Twitter for, for, for DMs. Um, I'm also on... Um, I don't even know my email address, to be absolutely honest. Um, uh, bentd76 at gmail.com is the, the one I generally use. I have got a Regen Ben. Have a look at the website. I've got a Regen Ben website. Um, that probably needs a little bit more updating of, of, of lots of other stuff we're doing at the moment. But um, yeah, Google Google myself. It, it, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of contact details there. Um, nice. And I'll try fantastic. and get in touch. Well, guys, it was brilliant to talk to you. Uh, what a fantastic conversation. We could try and do this again sometime. It was a lot of fun. Thanks once again to Ian Robertson, Ed Brown, and Ben Taylor-Davies. I'll be posting all of the links and the contacts that they mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that you can now contact us at Climate Farmers directly to be matched with an expert in regenerative agriculture in order to assist you in your journey towards regenerative management of your land and farm business. Just click the link on the show notes for this episode on the website and you'll be connected with one of our representatives who will help you to evaluate your unique needs and context in order to match you with a professional who will help you break through to the next level. 
So don't just admire the legends of regenerative agriculture from a distance. Instead, connect with them directly. We can help to connect you or someone that you know with legends like Harriet Mella, Mark Shepard, Ray Archuleta, Adamir Caligari, and of course, Ed, Ian, and Ben as well. You can also learn more about our work and our growing list of services for farmers in Europe at climatefarmers.org. And of course, if you like this thread focused on regenerative farming and the consultants who assist in the transition process, you can drop me a line directly at oliver at climatefarmers.org to send your feedback and make recommendations of people and topics that you would like to hear more about. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And Climate Farmers and I will be right by your side along the way.